Welcome to Concord Matters, a show seeking for Concord, agreement in Christian confession. Concord mattered to Jesus and Paul, and so it does to us also. Spend these next 60 minutes as we talk matters of Concord. Concord Matters, a program produced by the Christ-Centered Leader in Confessional Broadcasting. Worldwide KFUO, online at kfuo.org. And welcome to Concord Matters, the show where we seek to be of one mind, that is the mind of Christ, and to do that, a couple of Christ-confessing Concordians confer with the Book of Concord to conform what we believe, teach, and confess according to Scripture in our Lutheran Confession of the Faith. On today's show, we're going to continue our discussion of the catechized life. I'm your host, Pastor Sean Smith, pastor of the Evangelical Lutheran Dual Parish of Emmanuel West Point and St. Paul's Wine Hill in Southern Illinois. And our catechist for this series is Pastor Mark Bestel. He is pastor of Calvary Lutheran Church in Elgin, Illinois. Pastor Bessel, great to have you back with us. And today we are going to actually get into the catechism. Third episode in here now, but we've set up the last couple of episodes. Excellent what you've done there for us. I think that was really quite good was to get us into the catechism. You've got me reevaluating even how I teach the catechism. And as I said a couple episodes ago, I think I do a lot of the same things, but I tend to just jump right into the Ten Commandments. But I think I agree with you is that it really is to start and lay a foundation that our Western culture that we live in today just isn't in the same place even as acknowledging God even. And so how do we get into the Ten Commandments and acknowledge that there is truth, there is a true God. And I love what you set up with that separation syndrome last episode for us, understanding the brokenness that we experience under the fall. And that's going to help us transition beautifully right into the Ten Commandments here today. So go ahead, Pastor Bestel, and get us transitioned then from the separation syndrome, which you set up, and into the Ten Commandments, the opening of the catechisms here today. Sure. Happy to, Sean. The reason that we sort of start with the separation syndrome is partly to help the children in the confirmation class or the adult catechumen who lives daily life out in the world and starts to ask questions of how could any of this come from a good and loving God. Uh, The reason that we start with that is because they have a very similar question then regarding the law, the holy law of that good God. And they tend to ask very similar questions in terms of why should I listen to this law of God, almost as if it's being set up for their failure in a very same way that they look at the world out there and say, boy, if this is coming from a good and loving God, uh, and yet it's totally broken and a complete mess, then I want nothing to do with it. They tend to sort of have similar knee-jerk reactions to the Ten Commandments. You know, that they might say things like, this is too much to ask. This is too high an art, if you will. This is too much to demand of me. It's against daily life's natural way of doing things. And so it doesn't seem to relate all that much to their daily life. It's asking them to live a daily life that is much different in their minds than what they think daily life should look like. And so it's a very important connection to make. We've now made that connection. And it's a helpful connection to make because now we can understand sort of their instinctive reaction 
which shows sort of man's understanding of what is natural and good is to be expected to be a little bit different than God's understanding of what is natural and good. In fact, in Titus, Paul says that mankind's mind has been warped. Uh, that word there in the Greek, it's as far as I've been able to find, it's the only use in the New Testament that Paul says that man's mind has been warped by the fall. Uh, for example, how often do people think things like, or, or ask questions like, well, I think God set Adam and Eve up to fail. How could he place that tree there in the middle of the garden and expect anything differently than what happened? But the tree was their form of worship. It was the one thing, it was their altar, if you will, that separated the creator from his creation. In everything else, there was complete unity. They had no inclination to be tempted by it. That's something that's very difficult for you and me to even think about, because when we think about temptation, we always think about temptation according to our own natural inclinations after the fall. But Adam and Eve had nothing inherently natural by which they lusted after the tree. And so in a sense, the average person can't even fathom the willpower that it would have taken them to actively and intentionally defy God. And of course, there we speak more of Adam than of Eve. The apostle says that Eve was deceived, uh, but Adam must have very actively and intentionally defied God. And we can't even grasp that because it's our natural inclination in a way that it wasn't theirs. And so we can't relate to that perfection that was theirs. And in the same way, we don't then naturally relate to the Ten Commandments. Uh, We have a hard time relating to the natural perfection of God's holy law. We try to make excuses about the law being out of touch, being too tall of an order. And we think even that maybe God is giving this law specifically to curse us. Uh, It is true that the scriptures say we have been saved from the curse of the law, but that phrase there isn't intended to describe the law's natural character but rather it's how the law shines upon us, the curse that we've placed upon ourselves. Uh, We have to be very careful with that distinction. The error of antinomianism, I think, makes the mistake of trying to say that the law is almost naturally a bad thing that God saves us from. But St. Paul says that the law is good. In fact, in Romans 7, he says, you know, if I agree that I'm the sinner, then I agree that the law is good and holy and wise. In fact, Paul continues on there in Romans, and he says, before the law, I was alive. When the law came, I died. In other words, the law did not cause his death as if the law was the bad thing, but the law simply showed him how cursed and condemned he was. And so how does it show that? It's because the law is holy, pure, righteous, and good. And we're not. And so when it casts that mirror, if if you will, upon us, when it shines that light upon us, and we have to compare ourselves to its holiness, it's not a very fun comparison. But that's a very important thing for us to understand when reading the Ten Commandments, that the Ten Commandments exude, if you will, God's holiness. The Ten Commandments are not an arbitrary laundry list of God's demands as if he was just sort of sitting in heaven one day and said, oh, you know, what 10 things do I want to command of people to make their life more difficult? Well, that's not the Ten Commandments at all. But rather, in a sense, I think it could even be described that the Ten Commandments are almost like the very essence and holy will that is radiating out from God. 
and thus is to be reflected by those who are created by God. And we can certainly speak of that in terms of that perfect first creation when Adam was made in God's likeness and image. But then when we have to admit that Seth was born into the fallen image of Adam, then to compare that fallen image with the still holy image of God, all of a sudden now these things are completely at odds with one another. And yet for the one who is baptized into Christ Jesus, we see the holy law in a totally different light, because that holy law, again, is a holy law that is good, is pure, is righteous. And now that we have been baptized into Christ, we see it as holy, good, pure, righteous, not as some impediment or stumbling block. And so when we read the Holy Ten, we're not really reading a list of hoop-to-jump-through demands. We're reading God's good will. And remember, all the way back to the first episode when God created the world, and it was tov, it was meod tov, it was very good, it was perfect. And that's what we are really referring to when we read the Ten Commandments, is God's perfect will. If we would just follow them perfectly, life would be so blessed and so perfect. But the problem is with us. The problem is not with the holy will or the holy law. And so we're reading God's good will. And that's, again, another use of terms that I think is important for Christians to really focus on, is that the word law is no different than the word will, or God's law as a phrase is no different than the phrase God's will. It is God's will to benefit his faithful people in this creation, in daily life. The Ten Commandments do that for us as we love his law. And so we only read it in a bad light when old Adam comes along and he says, you know, this is keeping me from being the self-serving God that I want to be. And yet the new Adam reads the Ten Commandments and says, you know, this is something I can rejoice over and I can love. You know, think of how many times the psalmist talks about loving God's word, God's laws, God's statutes. In fact, the very first psalm, blessed is the man who delights in the law of God, who meditates night and day upon it. And new Adam even notices that the Ten Commandments could also simply be called the Ten Statements. If you look at the original language in the Hebrew there, the phrases you shall or you shall not do not have to necessarily be a command as much as simply a declaration, a statement, the Ten Statements of how God's people shall live. They're going to live that way not to try and save themselves, but merely as a consequence of having been saved by Christ. Just as we talked last time about the consequences of the fall and the consequences of the separation syndrome, so also there are consequences of being saved by God and being reunited with Christ. And that is the ability to take great joy and delight in God's goodwill for daily life. Uh, I suppose the one last introductory statement I would make on this is that the fact that the Ten Commandments are written in sort of a negative form as people read it, you shall not do this, you shall not do that, that sort of just reflects the reality that God does have to speak in terms of the consequence of the fall. We now live in a fallen world. We now live with the instinctive desire to push against God's will. And so now he does have to speak in a negative that reminds us that there are limitations because of the fall. There are limitations and, if you will, things that keep us on the straight and narrow.
And so you might even say, when you consider the commandments, and, and they always sort of repeat the same trend and theme, that the word you shall is sort of the joy of the new Adam. And then the word not might even be sort of a reminder of the daily drowning that is needed for the old Adam. And you can think of the baptismal language there as we get into the fourth chief part on baptism, that the baptismal life of one of constantly drowning the old Adam, you shall not, and yet raising up the new Adam, you you shall. And so you have this great description right in the Ten Commandments of both the joy of the new Adam and also then the putting down of the old Adam. Yeah, I just love what you've set up here for us and want to, again, encourage our listeners, go back and listen to those first two episodes. We're going to continue to revisit these themes and talk about the separation syndrome. And, you know, it's it's not essential, but it's going to be really helpful because, again, I think even in my own teaching, I generally start with the Ten Commandments and then I start to explain a lot of the things that you've really set up. I like what you said there. You know, it's not an arbitrary laundry list of God's demands. I spent a lot of time as I go through the Ten Commandments explaining how this is God's love for us because he wants his creation to be happy and to live the happy life. And that can only be done when you live the way that he's created to to work. And that, again, that comes out in my teaching as well, and I think does for a lot of Lutheran pastors, but is maybe even more effective when you set that foundation that you're continually drawing back to that again. And so I just want to encourage our listeners to go back to that and listen to that again as we get into these Ten Commandments. That foundation that you've laid for us is really quite so excellent. So let's go ahead and dive into those ten then. The, the first table We'll start with that on today's show. We're going to be just dealing with the first table, and I'll have you talk about that here in a second. But let's go ahead and get the first commandment then. You shall have no other gods. Go ahead and talk about that, Pastor Bestel. Sure. I like this simple interpretation. Every now and then, you know, uh, there might be disagreement of saying, you know, I like the old catechism that, you know, thou shalt have no other gods before me. And people can go back and forth on that. Uh, I like the simplicity of this, that, you know, that scriptural phrase before me could easily be misused by sinners to think that we can have other gods after God. As long as he's first, then I can sort of have a secondary God. And that's not at all what he means here. Rather, the before me actually simply means you shall have no other gods in my presence or before my face. And to you know, sort of tease this out a little bit, if God is omnipresent, right? If God is everywhere and if he's all-knowing, then where can you possibly have another God that God is not and that is not before his face or is that not in his presence or in his knowledge? So this is not an issue of saying, God needs to be first, and then I can have sort of little mini gods after him. But rather, it's simply, there are no other gods. And that's a really important thing to understand in this. And so I really like, uh, and people can disagree with this, I suppose, I really like the newer catechisms, simplicity in the verbiage there. You shall have no other gods, period. Now, when we uh, get into the meaning then, uh, we should fear, love, and trust in God above all things. Perhaps it's because of that last word, things, that we often teach this by launching into a discussion that points out that even material things are little idols for us often. We allow these things to pose as gods. The large catechism definition of a god is helpful. Remember, right in the large catechism, Luther says that a god is that from which we are to expect all good and in which we are to take refuge in all distress. 
And as that is our heart's definition, it might seem common sense among Christians that you know we can't really be so easily dissuaded from the Christian faith by other named deities. Though in our pluralistic society, we do have to be increasingly careful about this and, and watchful for it. But I would think for most Christians, it's not going to be very tempting for them to hear of the idea of saying, oh, yeah, I'm going to jump over and start worshiping Allah or Zeus or some of the you know Eastern mystic gods like Brahma or Vishnu. That's typically not, I think, probably the most tempting thing for one who is a Christian. But what is far more tempting? Now, as I say that, I suppose we should point out that the Israelites, children of God, the very people of God, they did fall right into Baal worship, the, you know, the use of Asherah poles, uh, things of that nature. So it's not, it's not out of the realm of possibility, as Israel's own history shows us. But it usually starts much more subtly than that. Uh, and it starts by us saying, okay, what materialism do I want to idolize? And then which God is going to promise that to me? And that's how we sort of slip into the appeal to other named deities, because we're really wanting to be served materialistically, and supposedly these other deities promise that. And that's especially a big problem in our society, I think, because you know our society has a history of being capitalist, but we all know that over the last generation or so, it's been terribly divorced from any mention of the Ten Commandments in daily life. Those of us who are old enough probably remember, what was this, maybe 15, 20 years ago, the big debate about whether or not the Ten Commandments should be listed in public school rooms and courtrooms across the land. And that debate uh, was sort of a a surface-level debate to something that had already happened, which is that the Ten Commandments had already been removed from the hearts of our culture's people. And once it's removed from the hearts of the people, then it doesn't matter in many ways whether or not it's on the walls or not. It just becomes sort of a dusty old relic. And where the heart has removed the Ten Commandments and capitalism has just become sort of a, a consumerism, then materialism as an idolatry is a very big form of idolatry in our culture. And so we rightly teach our catechumens to safeguard against the idolization of things like money and mammon. And that's not unique to our culture. In the large catechism, that was the very first thing that Luther appealed to, was the idolatry of mammon. We could also, especially in the day of COVID, uh, we could also obsess over things like good health. And just as an aside, I think in many ways our COVID response as a culture Uh, Our COVID response as pastors, as people, as congregations really sort of has to be judged looking back on it as a question of how did this shape up well with the first commandment? In what way might we have trusted government and science as proper servants of God? But also in what way have we trusted government and science in place of God? I think we have to be honest about wrestling with that a little bit more than perhaps we're comfortable doing right now because we're just glad to have gotten past COVID. But when government and science says it's too dangerous to gather around the altar and call upon the name of the Lord, then we've crossed a line, if we're being honest. We've crossed a line in the sand into idolatry when we obey government and science over God. There's really no place that you can look to and justify saying that the fourth commandment 
can be cited in a way that gives us reason to not observe the first commandment or the second commandment or the third commandment, that somehow the fourth commandment has jurisdiction over the first table of law. I, you know, and, and sadly, I think this last year, if we're being honest with ourselves, I think all of us have sort of fallen into a, a situation where we've probably got to look back and say, okay, can we now, after the fact, dissect a little bit more clearly whether we were faithful in using the fourth commandment versus, if you will, the first table of commandment, or were we using the fourth commandment in proper service to the first commandment? And I think that's a conversation that we have to have. Now, uh, I guess going on, though, uh, why do we even have that conversation? And why are we tempted in that way regarding, for example, the fourth commandment in use of or in service to the first commandment? Why do we allow ourselves to be tempted to reason things like government and science over God? And why do we try to justify that as saying, oh, well, really, I just meant government and science serving God. Really, it's a matter of me declaring to myself what will keep me safe. And there we see this is really a matter of the first commandment, because there is really only one substitute that challenges the one true God, and that is the capital M, me. Every idol out there is really about the capital M, me, just as the great temptation, ye shall be gods, right? And that's, that's exactly how the serpent tempted Eve and Adam, and it's how we're tempted all the time as sinners. And that me idol is so potent that human reason even rationalizes away every idol as if these idols are actually being used in service to the true God, when it's clearly contrary to fear, love, and trust in God above all things. And we reason it all away because that's what allows me to keep me safe according to the way that capital M, me, thinks capital M, me, is safe, you see. So when the COVID outbreak, as an example here of how we need to defend against this, When the COVID outbreak was about to close our church doors, we could see it coming, right? You were hearing things on the West Coast from Washington State and from the Bay Area in California. Uh, And so when we saw this was coming and and we knew it was going to be the last Sunday before all of this was upon us here in Illinois, I reminded our congregation not just to be comforted, but also to be faithful. Not just words of gospel, but also words of law because God's law is good, And God's law is holy, and God's law is pure and righteous. And so I said that Sunday before uh, we had to uh, close down for a couple weeks, I said, you know, outside of fear, love, and trust in God above all things, there's the first commandment and its meaning. I said, outside of fear, love, and trust in God, fear is always sinful. Now think about that. Fear in anything else or fear about anything else makes that something else always stronger in my eyes than the one true God who defends me. It means that the capital M, me, is fearful that, again, me can't protect me. And so the elders of the congregation, good, faithful men, the elders and I drove that point home, saying repeatedly to the congregation the first few weeks, we will not fear. Our help is in the name of the Lord. There's that beautiful line, right, certainly in the scriptures, but also that one of the opening lines of the liturgy every Sunday, our help is in the name of the Lord. And remember that that word help is sort of the same letters that the Greek word hope 
is. The Greek word for hope is helpis, from which the English word help is derived. And so our help, our hope is in the name of the Lord. And that law and gospel back and forth kept everyone level-headed, calm, faithful. And so consider then, in the same way as that illustration, consider when Jesus approached the disciples in the boat. He was walking on the water. This is Matthew 14. He said, fear not, first commandment, fear not. And then the English, sadly, I think, translates it that Jesus says, it is I myself. But the words in the Greek are simple, ego eimi. Fear not, I am. And that first commandment moment silenced their fears that they, even though they were seasoned fishermen, even though they might have trusted in capital M me to get through that wind and wave, and then became despairing and despondent when they realized they couldn't get themselves through it, nevertheless, our help is in the name of the Lord. Their God was with them. And so every false God we raise up is really about raising it up to serve that capital M, me. And thus, there's always a one-on-one competition of theologies. It's either Christ or it's me. Those are the only two gods, if you will, one true, one false, but the only two gods at the end of the day, one is Christ, the other is capital M, me. It's either Christology or it's narcissism. And even avowed atheists believe in a God, and that God is capital M, me. And so that first commandment is is huge in understanding what's really going on in daily life. I like how you've set this up here for us, and we're coming up on a break in another minute or so, but I want to get your thought on this before we take that break. I said something similar to my congregations, and I've said similar things here on the show as well throughout COVID that, uh, you know, I like what you said more pointedly than maybe even I have said, which is outside of the fear, love, and trust in God, fear is always sinful. And I have added to that, even a common thing that is thrown out there is the fifth commandment, you know, that we have to, that we have to care for our neighbor's body and we're doing these things out of protection for our neighbor. And I say, even fear for my neighbor is sinful. And this is why I wonder your thoughts on this, because I think that does come back to what you set up again of that chief God that we like to have, which is me. It's up to me to defend my neighbor, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. I'm not even trusting God to take care of that. I don't know. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I think that's another one that we've got to wrestle with is that any time that you use the second table of the law as a way of sort of, um, oh, what's the word we're looking for here? As a way of sort of defining how you want to keep the first commandment then you've misinterpreted the weights, if you will, of the commandments. Every commandment that you break is always a breaking of the first commandment, right? Now, that doesn't mean that you can then go along and say, oh, well, look, I'm keeping the fifth commandment, and therefore the first commandment in this case is being kept because it has to serve how I want to keep the fifth commandment. Uh, we, can, we can keep commandments four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, and 10 in an incorrect way if we think that we're the ones doing this, And that we think that it's up to me, capital M, me. And then if I accomplish this, then God should be pleased with how I am worshiping him. So, yeah, in in sort of a backdoor way, unintentionally, we can actually be breaking the first commandment when when we put too much emphasis on me and my ability to keep commandments four through ten. I think that's very well stated. And again, too, we want to be clear and say we understand that it is important to also 
hold these things in tension. I I often love to bring up in this show and in my pastoral ministry, it's one of my common phrases I use all the time, that the Christian life is one that is lived in tension. And that is difficult for us to hold things in tension. And so we do want to be faithful to the fourth commandment. We do want to consider the fifth commandment and care for our neighbor. And, you know, these things are difficult to work out. And so, again, if you have concerns about these things, and I echo your sentiments, I think whether it's COVID or just life in general, we do well to examine ourselves as scripture would bid us do and as the catechism certainly would do and to do so against God's word. And these things are, you know, it's tough to hold those things in tension. So do so faithfully considering God's word. Know the gospel is always there to forgive all sins where we have acted sinfully and uh, work these things out with your pastor and as a community of believers together. And these things are important things to consider as we continue to consider what God has given to us for his will for the world. And so heavy stuff to consider there, but there's joy to this commandment as well. It is God's will for us for having a happy life, as I've said. And so we'll pick that up on the other side of the break. So that's Pastor Mark Bestel. I'm Pastor Sean Smith. We're talking about the catechized life, and this is Concord Matters on KFUO. Hi, I'm Pastor Ted Lesh of Chapel of the Cross Lutheran in North St. Louis County. Your brothers and sisters at Chapel of the Cross invite you to join us where Jesus meets us in his word, where law and gospel are proclaimed, where forgiveness is announced and received. We encourage one another in this true faith and shared life. Join Chapel of the Cross for worship Sundays at 4 p.m. right here on KFUO Radio. Welcome back to Concord Matters. I'm Pastor Sean Smith, your host, and Pastor Mark Bestel, our catechist, and we're going to continue talking about the catechized life here. We've gotten into the small catechism, the large catechism as well, starting the Ten Commandments, talking about the first table today. Don't know that we'll make it all the way through the first table, but that'll be helpful for us as we see this hinge into the second table, and we'll talk more about that as we get there. But we want to continue looking at the first table and looking at the first commandment. Pastor Bestel, in the first half of the show, right before break, I said, you know, we got to hold these things in tension. And when we hold in tension our ways that we fail under the first commandment, you even brought up something that I often bring into my teaching, which is every time we break one of the other commandments, we're always breaking the first commandment. They all serve the first commandment. And so is there joy to this commandment? We like to talk about when it comes to commandments, how there's kind of the negative and the positive, if you will. What's the joy of this commandment then? There certainly is joy to this commandment. I think that comment that you make about the tension between the two is so helpful here, because if we keep them in the right order, then the tension is relieved, right? The first commandment never serves the other commandments, but rather the other commandments serve the first commandment. And this is why Jesus calls the first commandment the greatest of the commandments and then says that everything else is like it. So if we keep that in mind, then what we keep in mind is that the reason that all the others serve the first commandment is because the first commandment promises us a God and the others serve that one true God. And if we have the opportunity to serve that one true God, then there is great joy in that. 
There's great joy in having a relationship with God, a unity with God. And though the commandments don't specifically spell that out, simply the fact that, again, this can be read in the declarative sense. You shall have no other gods. It's just the reality of who you are as the people of God. You don't need any other gods. Uh, And so why would you go chase after other gods? Because you have the one true God, and there's great joy in that. And so as we understand that, then we understand that this first commandment is the cream of the crop. Everything else serves it. It doesn't serve commandments 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, and 10, but rather commandments 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, and 10 serve it. And we can get into that in future episodes. And so Luther, when he's talking about the joy of the commandment, he reminds us that really this first commandment is really a question of whether or not we should be able to expect all good to come from God, right? The question is, where does good come from? That's what people are looking for in this world. That's why when they when they look out at the separation syndrome out there and they look out in the broken world out there and they say, well, you know, this is a mess. Is this really the work of a good God? And the answer is no, it's not the work of a good God. And so the Ten Commandments, as Luther talks about it in the large catechism, he really hits home on this reality that from God, you can expect all good and all good comes from God and from no one else. So God doesn't call us to keep the first commandment just because he wants to be praised for his own glory. Rather, he says, in a sense, expect all good to come from me. Uh, As the apostle says it, every good gift comes from above. From the Father of lights, in whom there is no variation or shadow of change. That's from the Epistle of James. Uh, The large catechism speaks this way when it addresses the truth that we experience good from other people, and yet that good always comes from God. I uh, actually have an extended quote for you from the large catechism. It says this, Even though we experience much good from other people, Whatever we receive is by God's command or arrangement, and therefore is all received from God. For our parents and all rulers and everyone else with respect to his neighbor have received from God the command that they should do us all kinds of good. So we receive these blessings not from them, but through them from God. And there's a great reminder of the relationship, even as we've already hinted at it, at the first commandment's relationship with all of the others that we can expect from the fourth commandment, we can honor father and mother and government when they do what is good and God-pleasing because they serve the first commandment. When Paul talks about in Romans 13, the idea that everyone is subject to the governing authorities, he says, why? Because the governing authority is from God. And so the good that we have from the governing authority is not to be determined by the governing authority. It's to be determined by God's will. And therefore, where the governing authority governs us according to God's will, what a great gift and what a joy that is ours to know that God cares for his people, even through uh, human means. Now, just because we expect every good from God doesn't mean that we preach a sort of a a moralistic therapeutic deism. That's really popular in our day and age, isn't it? Uh, This idea of people saying, well, yes, I, I know I'm supposed to be a good person and I know that God wants me to be happy. And I know that there's just sort of this generic God out there. And that's sort of their view of all theology is a generic God who wants you to keep arbitrary rules and promises you you'll be happy. Moralistic, therapeutic deism. Uh, Sort of in shorthand, your best life now. 
right? If you're following someone who's preaching your best life now, I'd encourage you to think twice about that. God's story of redemption does not point you to your best life now. It points you forward to the life of the world to come. Meanwhile, in this world, Jesus says, you will have tribulation. But what does he say there? Fear not, I have overcome the world. Take heart, I have overcome the world. Or as we remember from the, uh, the use of Matthew 14, fear not, I am. And that again is the word of Christ. And so where we have Christ, we have great joy in this commandment because we know that we are one with God. And so we are to love and trust him with all our heart, soul, and mind. Uh, Luther says, a person's entire heart and all his confidence must be placed in God alone and in no one or nothing else. And that includes no confidence in me, capital M, me. Or I could say to the listener, no confidence in you yourself to attempt to save myself by my good works, as sadly some religions that call themselves Christian say, hey, you can help in your salvation by your good works and your good efforts. Or even the idea of saying I am saved by my faith, as if my faith is so strong or my faith is so noble and pure that God is so pleased with it, right? It's almost sort of a form of pietism there, rather than remembering that that the full term is we are saved by God's grace through faith in Christ alone. Uh, And so I'm not saved by my faith. That would put my hope in my faith. That would put my hope in capital M, me. I'm saved by the object of my faith. I'm saved by the one in whom faith can trust because that one is trustworthy and true. That's a first commandment issue. So no confidence in you, uh, no confidence in your attempting to save yourself by your good works, by your faith, or even by my reputation, right? That's, that's all idolatry. And where God sees our idolatry, he will not be mocked. And sadly, you know, when we think about that, uh, hate to say it, but there are a lot of churches out there that bear the name Christian that will say, I'm saved partially by my good works. We might think of the Roman Catholic teaching on these issues. There are churches out there that say, I am saved by my faith. Sort of, you know, those who talk about their decision theology and how God looks at their faith and is pleased with it. Uh, There are those who say, I'm saved by my reputation, right? Sort of the idea of the doctrine of the elect or the salvation of the elect, the double predestinarian idea. And none of those have any joy in the forgiveness of sin. They simply put their hope in the capital M, me, that thinks he can contribute to his own salvation. But where God sees this and where he sees our subtle idolatry in ourselves, he will not be mocked. And that's a very important thing that Luther brings up time and time and time again in the large catechism, where he says God will not have his commandments treated as a joke. He will not be mocked. He will not be played for as the fool. He says in the large catechism, here's another quote from Luther, God will not have this commandment thrown to the winds. He will most strictly enforce it. Again, Luther says, he is a God who will not overlook that people turn from him and turn from him where? Again, Christians aren't very quick to turn from him to Allah or Vishnu. They are perhaps a little bit more quick to turn from him to social pressures to defend my reputation, or to turn from him to my own good works, 
or to turn from him into, hey, look at how great my faith in him is. And all of a sudden, notice they have placed Christ on the sideline. I don't really need a savior because look at my faith or look at my good works or look at my status as the elect. And now Christ is on the sideline and that which unites us to the one true God is no longer there. And so it's not just knowing the name of the one true God, but it's also then calling upon, and we'll get into this in the second and the third commandments, but it's also knowing who my God is and that I should expect every good from him, including my salvation. Not every good from him because I have worked hard to please him and save myself, but rather I should expect every good from him, including my salvation. And so where new Adam then fears as a matter of reverence, all right? So, so sometimes people will ask the question, well, why, why then does it say we should fear and love God? Or we should fear, in the case of the first commandment, we should fear, love, and trust in God above all things. Why does it say fear if this is supposed to be the holy goodwill of God? Well, again, it goes back to who we are. New Adam fears as a matter of reverence. But if old Adam starts to get the upper hand, then the sinner better fear as a matter of terror because he is putting himself at odds with the only true God. And he is saying, I will stand by myself as the God of capital M me. And I think that I, as the God of capital M me, am somehow a better God than the one God I've been called to put all of my hope in. And so think of that passage from Matthew 10, when We are forewarned, do not fear the one who can destroy the body, but fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. And that is a great reminder to us that our God is a holy God. C.S. Lewis, remember, in in thinking specifically of Jesus, referred to him as Aslan in his Chronicles of Narnia series. And he often referred to the fact that God is not a tame God. He's not our servant in the way that he is serving capital M me. And this is an interesting difference between understanding God as the greatest good who serves me, which again is still sort of a subtle form of self-idolization, and understanding God as the one true God and there is no other. I'm oversimplifying here for a second, but Augustine's view might be, in a very oversimplified way, his view has at times been compared to saying God is the greatest good and that's why I love him. Whereas Luther's view was, no, we fear, love, and trust in God above all things simply because he is, right? That God deserves the glory, not because he's good to me, which is sort of a backdoor way of saying, what has he given me that I should praise him? And now again, capital M, me, is the one true God. But rather, we ought to glorify God just because he is. Whether or not he's good to me is not what makes him God. He could condemn us all. And we'd still have reason to only say, all glory be to God alone. Even as St. Paul hints, at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow, right? Not every Christian knee, but rather at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. And every tongue will confess one day that Christ is Lord of the glory of God the Father. So we don't worship the one true God primarily because, quote unquote, he's worth it to me. That would, again, be making capital M me the God, or I think he's worthy to be praised. That's not the point of the first commandment. We worship him simply because he is, right? The great I am, and apart from me, there is no other, Isaiah 45. Every other God who is ever worshipped is pretend. 
It's not there. And therefore is the great is not. And so that God is the one I am, the only one out there, is the reason for us to keep the first commandment. That he is good to us is a reminder of what it means that our unity with him is by his grace and that he is benevolent, gracious through Christ alone, and in some way even points us, if you will, to the joy of the gospel. And yet that joy is a joy that's rooted right in this first commandment, as Luther says as well, that he is the one true God and grace upon grace, he has chosen to have a relationship with us. I think that what you've set up there for us really serves as a wonderful hinge then into the second commandment. And I've especially found myself thinking of this as you brought out the Augustine quote and how Luther talked about that and so forth as well, is that really when we think about the way that we commonly pray or that the way that we use the name of our Lord, and even as we'll talk about in the second commandment, even what we might think is appropriate use of it, a lot of times if we're honest, I know I certainly in evaluation of my own life, we're prone to not misuse the name of the Lord, to use it rightly, but only still somewhat simply as I give praise to God because he's good to me, right? And that's what I pray to him for. And Luther will certainly pick this up in the Lord's Prayer as well in this tension within all of us that, again, we can approach to him because he is a God of grace and he is good to us. And so we can boldly come to him as children come to their heavenly fathers. Jesus indeed asks us to call upon him. But at the same time, a lot of times, I just think if we evaluate our motivations, it's really more, once again, serving an idol of myself, which is where I think it's one of those subtle ways that we are creating an idol that we may not identify it as an idol. We may not even say, yeah, we're worshiping another God here. Or even as you said, you know, that the sinner might use this as an opportunity, those words that were in the older translation of before me to say, well, yeah, but then all these other things come after, you know, a lot of times we may not identify those as other gods that we're serving, but they really amount to that as much. And so I think that this transitions then into the second commandment and don't want to dwell. I mean, we could certainly dwell for a long time on the first commandment. You and I have joked off air that there's plenty to talk about there. We could go on for years just talking about the first commandment. And Luther spends, I mean, really the two main things he spends a lot of time on in his large catechism is the first commandment and the fourth commandment. And so there's a lot to talk about there. But to continue moving us forward in our catechetical lessons here and just getting a broader view of the first table, at least as much as we're able to today, I do want to move us forward then into the second commandment, which is, of course, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. And our meaning that we use from the small catechism is we should fear and love God so that we do not curse, swear, use satanic arts, lie or deceive by his name, but call upon it in every trouble, pray, praise and give Thanks. And so, Pastor Bessel, go ahead and take us through that. And if you want to comment at all on kind of that hinge between the first into the second that I kind of brought out there, please feel free to do that as well. Sure. I think it's a great hinge. And I would simply go back to another Luther quote there where he talks about the consolation of the promise, right? He says, look, the the idea that there's only one God out there is threatening to the sinner. And the quote is, as terrible as the threatenings are, so much more powerful is the consolation of the promise. So the capital M, me, in wanting all of these other subtle gods to serve me, he is threatened by that first commandment. And yet what joy and consolation 
and saying, no, there is one true God, and that one true God is a God of love and is a God who desires to care for me. And that's sort of the transition into the second commandment, because if the question of the first commandment is, do you have a God or who is your God? The second commandment question is, does your God hear you? And thankfully, again, with great joy, it's a resounding yes. He promises to hear us. And so he makes a commandment, not so that we pray in vain, or that we pray as a as sort of just rote practice for doing it, but so that we might know that he hears us and that we might take great joy and confidence that our God wants to care for us and promises to care for us. And so as we get into the second commandment, we see this reality. In fact, I think we can even tie it into the, into the separation syndrome a little bit. The first commandment shows that it shows the sinner, apart from Christ, that there is a separation between the one true God and man that man has caused, and that needs to be reunited. The second, and in a sense also the third commandment, show the separation between man and his own thoughts about God, his fear that maybe God won't listen to me, maybe God won't hear me, maybe God won't care for me. Or even to say it in accord with the large catechism, the first commandment has instructed faith, or doctrine, Luther says, the second commandment instructs the mouth and the tongue, the practice. If I have a God who is true, then I can call upon him, right? You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, but you shall use it rightly. That's basically what the second commandment means. You should trust in it to the point of actually calling upon it. That's the second commandment. Uh, And now, uh, well, just for the sake of time, uh, we'll, we'll go on. Luther's large catechism explanation immediately latches on to the deceived by his name phrase here. And in the large catechism, he points out that the worst offender when it gets to the second commandment is false preaching. The worst offender is false doctrine, which leads us away from God by basically answering the question of, will my God hear me by saying, well, only in this, right, here are his actual promises. Here are the true promises of God. And the false preaching comes in and says, well, here are actually the promises of God. And maybe the promises of God that we're teaching you are that he won't hear you the way that he has promised to hear you, or he won't serve you and care for you the way he has promised to care for you. Even heterodoxy, though it contains some true and proper elements, it still teaches the person or teaches the hearer not to trust the pure word of God and his promises, and therefore maybe not to call upon him in the way that God has taught us to call upon him. And so Luther puts false doctrine and false preaching right at the heart of this commandment. And he says, uh, you know, yeah, it's bad to use vulgar language. It's, It's bad to appeal to satanic arts. But these things become our comfort only if false doctrine and bad preaching make our psyches think that God is not trustworthy. That's the only time that we appeal to the satanic or to you know take our frustrations of despair and despondency out in vulgar language. We do that because we don't think God is actually very uh, attentive to our need and willing to hear our prayer. And so every heresy that is out there including, again, heterodoxy, uh, where heresy is mixed in with orthodoxy, all of it teaches us to trust something other than calling upon God's name. And, you know, it's sort of an interesting reality that Luther appeals to bad doctrine here when it could be used in the third commandment's focus on the word. And I've actually had people ask me about that before. 
why would Luther say that here and not focus that on the third commandments meaning? And I think it's because here his focus is not on the bad doctrine itself. It's on those who actually preach it, those who actually espouse it and try to promote it, who in the name of Christ advance the false doctrine. Think of in the Gospels where it says that people say, oh, but Lord, we taught in your name. We ate with you. You know, we, we spoke your name in the streets. And he says, depart from me. I never knew you. And so in the same way, Luther uses his large catechism to warn against this. Of course, he in his time knew this well with all the monkery going on, all the uh, popish stuff going on in the Roman Catholic theology, which sadly is still going on today, and says, beware of false preachers. Think of how often the epistles, Paul's epistles, almost every one of them, you can look in it and uh, you can find in almost every Pauline epistle, every uh, epistle of John, of Peter, they're all for warning us, beware of false preachers, because they teach you not to trust that Christ hears you and will answer your calling upon him in the day of trouble. But here we might then note even again the similarity then to, um, oh, how shall we say this? Even the false preaching that we do to ourselves Right, we go back to the psychological separation, and we said that every little thing that we fear is a matter of the psychological separation. Even children fearing the dark is a matter of psychological separation. And why do they fear it? They fear it because they doubt God's promise. And so my kids might ask me, you know, they might say, it's dark. Am I safe? And I can respond, well, Jesus is here with you. And they might say, but I don't see him. And they're actually preaching to themselves a false doctrine that Christ is not there. And so that false preaching can come from anybody, even from myself. And that false doctrine can convince me as my own false prophet to doubt the promises of God and thus to stop calling upon him in every trouble and to stop glorifying him as the source of safety, even forgetting to give him thanks for seeing us safely through the hours of night's darkness. And so when you think of the positive aspect of this, think of how the Lord says, call upon me in the day of trouble and I will deliver you, and you will glorify me. Right? That's a second commandment reality, isn't it? That we do have a God that we can call upon, first commandment, and therefore call upon him because he promises to deliver us in the way that he knows is best for us. I think it's really important what you brought out here in terms of the importance of being aware of false doctrine and watching out for it. You brought out that St. Paul warns about it. Luther is very concerned about it. And Jesus, of course, himself is very concerned about this. I think sometimes we don't give enough thought to just how stern Jesus is on this matter, so much so that when he talks about little children being led into sin and unbelief, he says, better a millstone be hung around your neck and you be drowned in the depths of the sea than to cause one of these little ones to stray, right? I mean, that that's very serious. And I've been known in my pastoral ministry to give that warning when people go off to other denominations or things of that nature and they say, oh, well, but they have so much for the youth and isn't that so great? And I say, hey, but what are they teaching the youth there? Think about that because Jesus has serious words about these things. You know, you need to evaluate the teaching that is happening in that place, not just the excitement of it. And so, I mean, I, I agree with you. This is a very important matter that Luther definitely brings to the forefront of the second commandment here. But with just a couple minutes left here uh, before we wrap up the show for today, and then we'll finish off this first table next week. Any other thoughts on the second commandment to kind of close us out here today? 
Sure, real quickly, the small catechism here in the second commandment now begins this pattern of meetings being laid out in sins of commission, sins of omission. I just barely mentioned it last episode, but teaching us what not to do, and perhaps this is most intimately tied to the phrase, we should fear God, but also then what to do, perhaps most intimately tied to the life of those who love God. So we should fear God and therefore not do these things, but we should also love God and therefore do those other things. And so You know, we so often focus on the sins of commission, but this commandment is most fully understood if we focus on the sin of omission, which is that we fail to recall that we have God's name, right? We've been baptized into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and thus we ought to wear it well. Think of that great baptismal hymn, All Christians Who Have Been Baptized, that says, so use it well, you are made new in in, in Christ, a new creation. So call upon it regularly. Depend upon the comfort of knowing that God hears your prayer. I one time had somebody who was an adult catechumen coming from the Roman Catholic Church, and the one sticking point for him was praying to the saints and praying to Mary. And I said, just out of curiosity, why pray to Mary and the saints when you can pray right to Jesus? And he just sat in silence, and he said, no one has ever asked me that before. But this is the great joy that we have. We don't have to appeal through intermediaries. We have one intercessor with the Father, and that's Jesus Christ. And therefore, what joy is ours that we have such unity with God that we can appeal right to him through Jesus Christ. And so the positive aspect of this commandment's meaning is to learn to cherish prayer, to call upon God's name as a regular part of daily life, and to wear God's name with confidence as one baptized into his family, and thus certain of his attention as your dear Heavenly Father. What a great comfort in the face of our cancel culture nowadays, that we can say to ourselves, what can man do to me? I belong to Christ. I can call upon him in every trouble. He promises, I will deliver you, and therefore you will glorify me. And I can live a life of joy and live a life that rejoices in gathering at the altar of God and glorifying his name because of the good God that he is uh, and because he is the one true God, the great I am, and yet great I am that he is. He's willing to think on me and willing to care for me. That is very well said. That's Pastor Mark Bestel. Thank you for continuing to serve as our catechist as we go through this series, The Catechized Life. Next week, we'll pick up the last commandment, the third commandment in the first table, and we're going to intentionally see how that hinges then into the fourth commandment and the second table. And so be sure to continue to join us for that as we'll pick that up next week. And thank you for stopping by today, listener. And until next time, keep confessing, church. <laughs>